0: All right, well, good morning. It's good to see all of you. If you've got a Bible, grab it. We are going to be at the end of Luke chapter 20 and into the beginning of Luke chapter 21. Chad just read just a few uh, minutes ago. It's on page 880 in the Bibles around you if you don't have a Bible with you. And if you don't really have a Bible at all, take that one home. It's our gift to you. Um, while you're getting to 880, Luke chapter 20, if I want you to consider with me that in any sphere of life you can think of, there are things that are just kind of givens. And so my kids play soccer. We were out at Noens, you know, down at Osborne Park last week. How many of you have, are in or have had kids that are participating in the Nowensville Soccer League? Put your hands up. So a decent amount of us. Um, so we were down there yesterday. And in soccer, I mean it's just a given that um, you you know have to kick the ball. It's just a given that you need to be able to run, and unless you're four or five, it's a given that you know where your goal is, four or five year olds, we can let that slide. But, like, in the Christian life, it's very similar as well. Maybe and should have been used there. And in the Christian life, it's kind of the same way. There are givens. But they are a lot of times imperative givens. So it's not just they just exist. They're actually commands that Christ has given, and we are to obey. And so you'll find them in Scripture where he gives a command, he gives an imperative, but then Elsewhere in scripture, it's just kind of assumed and he's talking. you know, the scriptures speak of a right way to do this and a wrong way to do this. Just kind of it's a given. It's an imperative given. It's been commanded, but now it's just kind of given and and commanded. That's what imperative means. And so just to give you some examples so you can kind of track with me a little bit for the Christian. All right. This is going to be reviewed for some of you. Those of you who don't have much of a Christian background, maybe this will be new for you. But for the Christian, it is just a given, all right? It's an imperative given. It is commanded that we are to pray. So it's commanded that we are to pray, but then the rest of the Scripture it places just kind of assumes that we're praying and speaks of the right way to pray and the wrong way to pray, okay? We could do this with a host of things, sharing our faith. That is commanded, but elsewhere in Scripture, it's just kind of assume that that's what we are to do, and it talks of the right ways to do this, talks of the wrong ways to do this, work, for the Christian, work is not optional. We are to work. And it's speaking, Scripture commands that, but then expr- explains it elsewhere. There's right ways and there's wrong ways. Being a church member, that is a commanded thing of Scripture, that we are to be a member of a local church. But then elsewhere, it just is assumed. And it speaks of the right way to be a member and the wrong way to be a member. And in our text this morning, we have another imperative given, and that is actually giving. It is just assumed Uh, Chad read just a minute ago, and you've got people putting money into an offering box. So elsewhere, giving is commanded, but here it's just assumed. And the thrust of the text is that there are right ways to give and that there are wrong ways to give. And, And it's not an exhaustive like spelling out every single wrong way to give and every single right way, but just gives a couple of examples. And so that's the thrust of the text, understanding how we are to give, right? That's the thrust of the text. But before we launch into the specifics of how we are to give monetarily, I want to back up to to help us understand some of the underlying uh, assumptions and commands of giving and give us a framework for understanding the biblical idea of stewardship. Because that's where all of this flows from. It flows from the idea of stewardship. And stewardship, look right at me, is not just about giving money. It's about life. All of it. Everything. And so number one in your notes, the first thing we've got to understand is the scope of stewardship. So number one, understand the scope of stewardship. Because everything in our lives, I just said it, is a stewardship issue. Everything. Why? Why why is everything a stewardship issue? Because we own nothing. Okay? We hammer on this been hammering on this a good bit lately. We own nothing. And so, for example, in my family, my house, my, my family, they're serving in the um, uh, in the children's wing right now. But in my family I've got, you know, Sarah, my wife, and then four girls, love them, apple my eye, everything. But they own nothing. My kids own nothing. There's not one thing they own. Now, I travel around and I hear kids in different places and, and you know, different times speaking and I'll hear them say things like, hey, that's my phone. No, it's not. Do you pay the bill? Is your name on the bill? Did you purchase the thing? If you didn't, then it's not yours. If your daddy did that, then it's your daddy's phone. And daddy's, that means you have every right to pick up that phone and go through it and look at who they've texted, what they've texted, what they've looked at. That is your right. It's your phone. And so kids, don't be complaining. It's their phone. You don't own it. They do. Uh Uh-huh. My room. Wrong again. You pay the mortgage. You want it to be your room? Pay rent. My food. Nope. My shoes. Try again. So what we're getting at is, I mean, this is the same thing with God. We don't own anything. It's all his. So the idea of my car, my job, my money. No, it's not. It's God's. And he's given it to us. He's loaned it to us to use. John read Psalm 24, verse 1, or the whole thing, but verse 1 says this, The earth is the wards and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. for He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. And so there's nothing that is inherently ours. Did we make the earth? Did we make the air that we're breathing right now? Did we make the water that we're drinking? Everything on the planet is God's. It's His. Every ounce of it is His. And so we've got to recalibrate our hearts and our minds to the the theological reality that the house or the apartment we live in is not ours. It's God's. The trees in your yard are God's. The grass that you mow, or some of you may need to mow, is God's. It's God's. The garden that you planted is God's. The car that you drive is God's. The clothes that you are wearing and the ones at home in your closet are God's. The books on your shelves are God's. The DVDs at your house that you don't even use anymore but are just in the corner taking up space, they're still God's. The songs and the videos on your device are God's. The device itself is God's. The furniture you're sitting on right now and the furniture you'll be sitting on when you get home is God's. We own nothing. It is all His and we are His managers. We just temporarily steward things that belong eternally to God. Everything is His. And so that means everything is stewardship. Everything. Your life, your time, your body, your mind, your job, the family that God's given you or the singleness that God's given you. We are to steward these things and so steward them well. Okay, understand the scope of stewardship. It's huge. We could stay here for a long time. But now let's get into the thrust of the text and understanding how we are to give. And so that's number two in your notes. Understand how we are to give. And of course, we should give to all kinds of different places and people, but it's to start with the local church. The first fruits go to the local church. But but more than this, this text is more about what are some of the motivations and what's the mindset that we're to have as we give. All right. How are we to give in that regard as it reflects our mind and our heart? And again, not exhaustive at all, but there's three things here I think we would do well to pay attention to. And so the first one, 2A, is this, do not give as a pretense, all right, do not give as a pretense. So listen to this text again. And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, beware of the scribes, who'd like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplace and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. And so Jesus is contrasting the sincerity of faith of this unnamed widow with the hypocrisy and pretentiousness of these scribes. And he's saying, don't be like that. okay? Don't be like these guys who have prayers that look long but fall short. I mean, just contextually, Jesus has been going off on guys like this um, for the last couple of chapters, really the whole entire book. He goes off on the hypocrites and the scribes and these men who live lives like this, but just particularly where we're at right now. Chapter 19, Jesus came into Jerusalem, triumphal entry. So we're in the last week of his life. And they began, you know, he goes into the temple and he Gets angry at what's going on in the temple. And he flips the tables over and he drives people out of the temple. And then they begin questioning his authority and he calls all of them wicked servants who God is going to judge. And then here, he's teeing off on hypocrisy. Why? I mean, what's going on? Why is Jesus being so harsh? Calling people, wicked tenants, you're going to go to hell. I mean, we've seen him be patient with a prostitute. We've seen him be so gentle with a tax collector. We're going to see him be kind and merciful and gracious to a thief on the cross and getting, jumping forward into the book of Acts. We're going to see him forbear for a long time and show great patience with a persecutor of the church named Saul. But here, in the presence of hypocrites, we see him go off saying, verse 47, they will receive the greater condemnation. That loses a little bit. 21st century vernacular. What he has just said is that there is a special place in hell for hypocrites. That's what he's saying. It's harsh. And so again, why? Why is he so ticked off by hypocrisy? Because of the great grace and love that He has for hypocritical sinners. See, hypocrisy is a sin that keeps you from, one, admitting who you are, and secondly, what you need, and then appealing to the one and the only one who can rescue you from your sickness. And it keeps you from seeing that. And so while Jesus deals gently with sinners who realize that they're sinners, when He comes into contact with sinners who are trying to pretend that they're not sinners, He goes hard after them because they have a disease that cuts them off from self-awareness and which cuts them off from the only remedy for their sin. And so the hypocrite sits there thinking, which means some of us, at times all of us, We're all hypocritical. We sit there and we think, keep this in. Keep this from being known. Don't let this get out there. Keep this locked off because if people know this, then they're going to shun me. They're going to reject me. They're going to want nothing to do with me. But the Savior is saying, I already know what's in you. Come to me, all you who are weary of playing this game. And who are heavy laden. And I'll give you rest. Savior knows. He knows what's in you. He knew what was in Peter. And he loved Peter. He knew what was in Abraham. And he loved Abraham. He knew what was in David. And he loved David. He knew what was in Saul. And he loved Saul. We've seen this all around here. Jesus, lover of my soul. And so it's not going to be his lack of love that will keep him from us. It will only be our feeble attempts at covering our own sin and our own self-justification that keeps us from him. And so he goes hard after hypocrites to try to open up their eyes. Try to open up our eyes. Because again, we're all hypocritical. Some regard or another, all of us are. And Jesus knows the truth. And so repent. Turn away. Turn to Christ. Healing and mercy come from Him. And just really specific to this text, don't don't make big prayers and don't give big checks to the church just to try to be esteemed in people's eyes. It's so childish. In fact, no, it's worse, it's satanic because that's what Satan did trying to rob God of glory that only he was due and get it for himself. And so turn away from that and turn to Christ. Do not give as a pretense and do not live as a hypocrite. All right? But if that's ways that we aren't to give, then what are if that's a negative, then positive. What are what are ways we are to give? To well, 2B and 2C in your notes, give as an act of worship and give in faith. All right, give as an act of worship and give in faith. We'll deal with the 2B first, giving as an act of worship. And when I'm talking about worship here, I'm not talking like some emotion. Some of us think that worship is coming in here and getting a high off of you know, the music or what. Now, that's not worship. That's you trying to get a high. That's you trying to get a hit, trying to get a little spiritual fix that'll make you feel good for the rest of the week. That's not worship. Worship in a lot of is a, is a lot of things. It's a big thing. But one of the biggest things that is worship is obedience. You worship God by seeking to follow Him. That's what a disciple is. It is a follower of Christ. And so you seek to follow Him. So when I'm talking of... As an act of worship here, I'm talking in the sense of obedience that we give as an act of worship and obedience. And so let's just do it. Tithing. Let's talk. What does the Bible say about tithing? Is that something that Christians should do? Or is that something that's just like the Old Testament, you know, is just an Old Testament thing only? Well, a couple of things here, and we're going to survey the whole Bible real fast as it relates to this. Number one, understand tithing is the basic principle of the Old Testament, right? It is the basic pattern of giving in the Old Testament. Why a tent? I have no idea. We could speculate, but that's all it would be, so we're not even going to do that. But it's the basic pattern of giving in the Old Testament, and it shows up really early. So the Bible begins where? This is not hard. Where does the Bible begin? Genesis chapter one, right? So tithing shows up first time in Genesis chapter 14 where Abraham gives a tithe to Melchizedek, the king of Salem. You get to Genesis 28, you see it again, and then it just rolls out from there across the Law of the Prophets and the Writings. Leviticus 27, Deuteronomy fourteen, Second Chronicles 31, Nehemiah 14. These are some of the highlights, but the idea and practice of tithing is everywhere across the Old Testament. It is central to Hebrew life. Jewish people were to tithe on their cereal. So there goes some of our lucky charms. Their fruit, their livestock. all right, And it was paid to the Levites who then had to tithe themselves as well. And so this is the absolute unquestionable established pattern in the Old Testament. Anybody who's going to tell you this, secular atheists who hate the Bible are going to tell you that that Old Testament, that's the established pattern. That's the first thing we need to understand. The second thing is this. Tithing is never stated as an obligation in the New Testament. Not once. Ever. Now, giving? That's all over the New Testament. Lavish generosity is all over the New Testament. All right? That we are to give that to the church, that we are to give that to the poor, that we are to give that to the needy, that is everywhere. But there's not one verse that states tithing as an obligation in the New Testament. matter of fact, the word tithe is only used in a couple of places. One of them is Matthew 23, where Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees who are bragging about tithing their bill and their cumin, And he says, that's great, but you need to make sure you're focused on the weightier matters like justice and mercy. And so that's the Gospels as it relates to tithing. And then you move across the expansion into the book of Acts. And then you get into the epistles. These are letters that different apostles or close associates wrote to various churches and individuals. And throughout those, tithing isn't really mentioned at all. And so the, the, and, and the reason is because the New Testament's idea of generosity and giving isn't about tithing or a percentage, but generosity. Lavish generosity. And, and so since some people could give more than 10%, Paul, that's Paul talks about just giving generously. Not out of our abundance. This is what the text just talks about, right? That's what the rich people did. But like the poor widow out of our need, beyond our means. She gave out of her poverty. So it's, it's, it's sacrificial. It's to, that's, the, that's the marker. Our giving is to be sacrificial. If it doesn't hurt, it's not sacrificial. Sacrificial. And so that's why a percentage is perhaps not the best way to go about it, because for some people, their level of income is such that 10% is not a big deal. It doesn't really, you know, I would just put it in savings. It doesn't really do anything. It's, you know, it's not sacrificial at, at, at all. I won't, I won't miss it at all. And so it's not sacrificial. And and then it creates this notion that only 10% is God's, not everything. And so the New Testament does not lay down the tithe as a principle for giving. But, listen closely, neither does it dismiss it. Neither does it dismiss it. All right? So I want to be straight with Scripture on these things. If it says this, I want to tell you. If it says this, I want to tell you. And so it doesn't lay it down as an obligation, but neither does it dismiss it. You can't find a, a verse that says the, the tithe. Yeah, that, that idea, that's Old Testament. Forget about that. I think El- Alistair Begg sums it up really well when he says this. Since there's not a verse that says dismiss or a verse that says, you know, that it's an obligation, al says, it's not unreasonable, therefore, to assume that the New Testament presupposes that the giving of God's people would be more than equal to the standard pattern of the Old Co- Covenant. And so, say that again, yes and amen, the New Testament does not lay down the tithe as a principle for living, but neither does it lay it aside. And so therefore, it is not unreasonable to assume that the New Testament presupposes that the giving of God's people will be at a minimum equal to the standard pattern of the Old Testament. Because think about what Jesus does when, you know, you come across different commands Does he ever diminish them? And he always ups them. So you think about, um, you've heard it said, do not commit murder. And what does Jesus say? He ups it. No, no, no. Don't even get angry unrighteously. That's like murder. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. And what does Jesus say? No, 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 no. He ups it. If you even lust after a person, that's like committing adultery. He always ups these things. And so trying to get our arms around this whole idea. It is a biblical truth beyond all debate that all of your money is God's. And it has been loaned to you to steward and use in ways that maximize the glorification of God's greatness in this world. And since Jesus Affirms the tithe because, like, you, you think about Matthew 23, he didn't say, Hey, you shouldn't tithe your dill and cumin. He says, That's great, you tithe out of your spice rack, but also do these things. Like, that's a good thing, but also he doesn't. So he affirms it. And so, since you know, Jesus affirms the tithe, and since the letters of the New Testament neither command it nor dismiss it again, I think then that the New Testament presupposes that the giving of God's people would be at a minimum equal to the standard pattern of the Old Testament. But that said, it would also, again, be ludicrous to think that giving 10% to the church settles the issue of good stewardship and sacrificial giving. As John Piper puts it, in a world of such immense need and in a country of such immense luxury, And under the commission of such a powerful Lord, the issue of stewardship is not shall I tithe, but rather how much of God's trust fund dare I use to surround myself with comforts? The question is not can I afford to tithe, but can I justify the lifestyle that consumes 90% of my income? And behind that question is the question, do I love to use God's money to spread justice and mercy and spiritual hope in the world? Or do I prefer to embezzle His money to purchase more and more personal comfort? In other words, are you more like the superficial and hypocritical scribe or the sacrificial and hopes in heaven unnamed widow? Scribe or widow? Superficial or sacrificial? These are questions we have to wrestle with. And so tithing is not the goal. Overflowing generosity is the goal. God gave lavishly to us in creation and in the cross. And he calls us to give lavishly as well. Because giving is every bit as much a part of worship as singing, praying, reading the word, and sitting under the preached word. It's a tangible and concrete expression of our worship and our submission to King Jesus. Tangible. And so give as an act of worship. But also give in faith. Right to see, give in faith. Because look at this poor unnamed widow here that Jesus praises. She gave all that she had to coins that we might not even stop to pick up because they are worthless. It's less than one one hundredth of a daily wage. Together. But the gift that she gives here indicates a great truth about this woman. It indicates that she is trusting God completely and it indicates a great truth about God, which is this, that he is worth being trusted like that. That you can trust Him like that. That you can put all of who you are and all of your hope in Christ. This lady was not owned, like many of us are, by our wealth. She was free. And content. And confident. That God is more valuable and more reliable than those few cents that she gave away. That totaled so little. But that's not the point. The point, it's all she had. It's not the size. It's all she had. She gave it all away. And so brothers and sisters, do you trust God like that? Do you follow God like this widow? I'm not just talking about like, giving all your money, but you giving all of you away. Does God have all of you? Or do you divide your life up into sections? And God has this section. This is God's section. But everything else is my section. The earth is of the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It's all His. Everything's His. You can't make a pie. He is the pie. And so, God, you know, when we're talking, does God have all of you? God doesn't want your money. He wants you. But in order to have you, you cannot give ourselves to him apart from our money. Because money, you've heard the, the, the saying, money speaks, right? Money speaks, money talks. And it does. It says a lot about our hearts, a whole lot about our hearts. It tells where they're at. And so, what does your giving say about your heart? Track your spending for a month. It'll speak to you. And folks, it's not about size, it's about sacrifice. And so do not look at your financial gift. I want to give you guys some hope. Those of you who maybe are struggling with the income and you're feeling beat up right now. It's not about the size. It's about sacrifice. And so don't look at your financial giving on the outside the way the scribes do. Look at it on the inside the way God does. No one should ever think uh, uh, of others or of yourself that the small contribution of the poor are worthless virtually. On the contrary, by grace, they are worth as much as anybody's gift. And they will receive the praise of King Jesus, like this poor, unnamed, humble widow here. She gave all to the Lord. And so, there's some practical things out of this as it relates to our giving. But also, Jesus is highlighting this story here about this lady who gave this for her huge, overflowing sacrificial gift. She gave all that she had. To prepare his disciples for what they are about to see in a few days. Christ. given an unspeakable. Sacrificial gift. Of himself. On the cross. In their place. And in our place. For our greed. For our materialism. For our idolatry. For our hypocrisy. To rescue us from these things and to forgive us and give to us eternal life, not on the basis of anything we've done because we are all hypocrites. We are all sinners. We are all covetousness, covetous. We are all idolaters, but on the basis of what Jesus has done in his perfect life and sacrifice for us. Friends, you are loved by Christ. And when we understand how God gave his son, then we'll begin to understand how we are to give. And that's it. Miss Bryant. Father, again, we thank you that you are patient with us that you put up with us and you bear long with us and you do not quit on us and you love us in the midst of our mess in the midst of our sin in the midst of our rejection our rebellion our forgetfulness our hypocrisy our presuming upon your grace And we thank You that You give the Holy Spirit to convict us of these things that we might recognize them in us, Father. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray that You would open our eyes and help us to examine our hearts and that You search our hearts and see if there be any deceitful way in us and we know You will find plenty. And so, Father, hear from heaven, as we take a couple of seconds to confess individually our sin against you. Father, thank You for sending Christ. Thank You for a rescue that You have made available to all who believe. Thank You for the cross and Your grace and Your mercy and Your freedom and Your forgiveness. We bless You and praise You. It's in Christ's name. Amen.